This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. And today, this is definitely not the media because we will be discussing a topic that is definitely not a topic you will likely hear on any other radio show, podcast, or live stream today. And that topic is, yep, you guessed it, poppers, as in amyl nitrate, as in those little bottles that are labeled room deodorizer or leather cleaner or aromatics. You know, those little blue bottles that, as our guest today writes, may be the only product that the state allows to be sold on a lie. As we will learn today, that is, if you did not know already, poppers are not used in the recommended or suggested way by the vast majority of users. No, people are not cleaning leather with poppers. Instead of simply adding an aroma to a room, users more often than not break the bottles open and inhale intensely, sniffing to get the most intense effect. That effect, again, according to today's guest, can be an end of categorizations like gay or male, which can open up possibilities for the future and gay utopias. Look, in no way is today's guest or myself or the show or wherever and however you are listening to this right now, in no way are we endorsing the use of poppers, nor are we condemning it as it is a completely legal product. And to be honest, we don't want enraged parents or litigious lawyers calling to register their complaints about what you're about to hear. That said, we'll learn the history, the most recent past, the present, and the future of poppers in a few when we speak with writer Adam Smith, author of Deep Sniff, a history of poppers and queer futures. Adam was the recipient of the 2019-2020 London Writers Award and is the author of several shortlisted and published short stories. Adam is also one of the producers of the Log, sorry, the Log Books podcast, the Log Books podcast, winner of gold in the best new podcast category at the British Podcast Awards in 2020. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Smith, and you can find out more. That's Adam Smith with a Z, obviously. You can find out more about Adam at linkter.ee slash Adam Smith. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Adam Smith. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, which means producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, how's your week going so far? Uh, I know the term solidarity has sort of been emptied out of any sort of meaning outside of capitalism, and people just use it nowadays for like a Patreon premium tier. Really? But I want to say with all my heart, uh, solidarity to the men and women that worked on the new Coke Zero formula. Great job. Hit it out of the park, guys. Still, I still don't like it, but I'm still drinking it. I can't believe you drink that stuff. That I, The substitute sugars all just freak my taste buds out every time I can taste them. Yeah, it's the closest I get to killing myself. Yeah, yeah, Coke Zero. Yesterday, I mentioned at the beginning of the show how I could not sleep prior to Monday's show. This morning, not only did I sleep well, but I never got up at all last night, sleeping almost seven straight uninterrupted hours. It's pretty much unprecedented over the last six or eight months for me. In fact, I slept in today because I set my alarm not for 6.48 a.m., but for 6.48 p.m. Luckily, I woke up right around then anyway, unlike last week before Wednesday's show, when my alarm never went off. I apparently turned the volume down to zero by accident. 
had to rush through all my prep, including not double-checking the pronunciation of the guest's name, which I then mispronounced throughout the entire interview. So that was great. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell, which is kind of a dud because we only got 10 responses, I guess not a lot of WW Jacobs fans out there, <laughs> is, and for your third wish... And for your third wish, uh, you want to explain the W.W. Jacobs reference? Monkey's paw. Oh, let's see. Do we call the monkey's hands paws? Yeah. Maybe they did back in the old times. I think that's a little bit anti-monkey. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We are completely commercial-free and do not accept any grant money, and we are not a not-for-profit because we're so unprofitable we can't afford to be one. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff decodes a MAGA secret. Thanks to those of you who went to thisishell.com and did click on support recently. Thanks to John E. in Los Angeles who got a red trucker's cap, which are suddenly very popular, as John R. in Indianapolis also got the red trucker's cap. And thanks to Daniel in Washington, D.C., who got the This Is Hell stainless steel enamel, enameled camping mug. You can find all of our stuff again by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Adam Smith on poppers. It's Tuesday, so we're reading your email sent to chuck at thisishell.com with your guest and topic suggestions and whatever else you want to tell us about the show. We got an email from past contributor and guest John K. Wilson, who was the 2019-2020 fellow at the University of California National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, is a contributing author to the Academe blog at academeblog.org and is a co-organizer for the Evanston Literary Festival. John writes, hi, Chuck and Alex. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing well, too, John. I wanted to suggest a couple of authors to you, Isaac Kamola and Ralph Wilson's new book, Free Speech and Coke Money, Manufacturing a Campus Culture War, which is being published on November 20th by Pluto Books. Isaac is Associate Professor of Political Science at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and the creator of Faculty First Responders. Ralph is co-founder and research director of the Corporate Genome Project, and former co-founder, research director of Uncoke My Campus. Thanks, John. So the publisher's page at the Pluto Press website for free speech and coke money states in recent years, hundreds of high-profile free speech incidents have rocked U.S. college campuses. Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Ann Coulter, and other right-wing speakers have faced considerable protest, with many being disinvited from speaking. These incidents are widely circulated as examples of the act Academy's intolerance towards conservative views. But this response is not the spontaneous outrage of the liberal colleges. This is a darker element manufacturing the crisis, funded by political operatives and designed to achieve specific political outcomes. If you follow the money at the heart of the issue, 
lies the infamous and ultra-libertarian Coke donor network, grooming extremist celebrities, funding media platforms that promote those controversies, developing legal organizations to sue universities and corrupting legislators. The influence of the Coke network runs deep. We need to abandon the campus free speech narrative and instead follow the money if we ever want to root out this dangerous network from our universities. And I just want to point out again, the organizations that these people are behind, uh, real quick, um, this Isaac Kamola is part of a group, the creator of uh, Faculty First Responders, which you can find out more about by going to facultyfirstresponders.com. Ralph Wilson, again, co-founder and research director of the Corporate Genome Project at corporategenomeproject.org, which both sound really fascinating and i want to look into both of those different organizations uh, this book sounds great the political power of the Koch brothers to manufacture crisis after cultural crisis is rarely reported in the mainstream corporate or public media because of the political power of the Kochs. one can only assume we really do not know why the news media does not report on the Koch family's influence over state legislatures and the writing of laws through alec the american legislative exchange council which literally writes the laws that state legislators they helped elect, introduces legislation, eventually becoming laws and changing the political lands landscape across the United States to one that unfairly benefits conservative political candidates. So, yes, John and everyone else, we definitely want to talk about the manufactured campus crisis that the media refuses to report as manufactured, a non-crisis meant only to distract and enrage the right into voting, which seems like what all these manufactured, manufactured crises are by the ultra-rich, including going back to 2008 in the Tea Party, which was completely funded by the Koch brothers. Not completely, but mostly funded by the Koch brothers. Speaking of manufactured crises, Alex, a public relations agency, asked if we were interested in speaking to the author of a new book revealing Northwestern University faculty members who are teaching students anti-Zionist conspiracy theories. Any interest, Alex? Oh, I see you're thinking about it. You're considering. Think about hitting my button there. <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever. I don't care anymore. <laughs> we also got an email about uh, the enduring hope of Jane Goodall. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't want to talk about Jane Goodall, but I'll talk to a monkey. <laughs> uh, Ronaldo. I was the editor of a Jane Goodall book and met her and knows her I well. thought you knew a monkey named Ronaldo. No, that like, would be hot. If I get a monkey, I'm naming it Ronaldo, just because that looks like a great monkey name. Coming up, the history of... No offense to Ronaldo. Or, it's a compliment, I'm not too sure. Coming up, the history of poppers and what that might mean for a future queer utopia. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is... And for your third wish? And for your third wish? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Again, during this week's moment, Jeff decodes a MAGA secret. And we'll be sharing more of your guest suggestions and other emails following our talk with Adam on Poppers. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. This is hell. Poppers are likely not something you have thought about recently. That is, unless you are a user, and there's a lot more users of amyl nitrate than you may think. But 
there's something more to poppers than a quick 45 second rush as our guest today argues poppers may be a key element in the search for a queer utopia that eliminates all the categories that are imposed upon us from hetero to gay and man to woman and everything between and outside of those categories here to act as our guide through the world and history of poppers writer adam smith is author of deep sniff a history of poppers and queer futures welcome to this is hell adam Hiya, Chuck. You all right? I'm doing great today. This is a very, very interesting book, man. I'm very fascinated by this. Thank you. You start with a a review of an art gallery show that describes a hairy gymnast performing a routine among strangers. The performer dips onto his hands and knees, presses his belly to the floor, stretches his feet, then his hands, mimicking the length of a line that's on the floor, a thin white strip pasted onto the floor, and it measures... 16.9 and then like 11 more digits meters slicing right through the gallery space as the visitors talk to each other the artworks are a backdrop except for the gymnast who penetrates them in sparkling sweaty lycra concentrated poised mischievous the performer is luis amalia and he is showing us a life on the balance beam you add a history of poppers finds dozens of characters like amalia different daring difficult whenever amalia performs there's something wrong about him his non-binary body is hairy pale perceived as male and yet his soul is Textured differently, light and dark, every every gender and more. The creature is mesmerizing a utopia of being, free from categories, cutting through the expectations placed on him. Are poppers then seen not only as something that is wrong, but are they also seen as a way to achieve a utopia of being? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's sort of similar story with lots of different drugs and substances that we take you know they help us they help us to access a different version of ourselves and then sometimes a more freer version of ourselves and that was why i opened the book with that artist luis amalia that you're talking about there and reading from the book just because uh, i i feel that performers especially queer performers like luis show us what's the potential of our bodies and they just embody these different ways of imagining what we can do with our bodies in performance and that links to sex and poppers links to sex and poppers is just this rush that you get you know when you sniff for 45 seconds or a minute or something like that where you can sort of imagine a different way of living in your body so to me all of these things are connected And you write that I wish I had seen Amalia's performance when I was an adolescent, although I probably would have rejected it. As I grew up, I allowed categories and expectations far too much power, and I didn't have the courage of Amalia to explore them artistically or try to shake them off. I would have seen the freedom he implied and turned away with teenage worry. What leads us to give so much power to categories and expectations, especially when we're growing up? I know that that continues throughout our life, but especially when we're growing up, why do we give so much power to those categories and expectations? Oh, I wish I knew the answer to that because you could just save so many teenagers from their angst, wouldn't you? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, you know, it's the power of society. It's the way that um, shame and stigma about uh, our bodies, our desires, our sexualities, uh, our, um, our voices, our hair color, our genders, our sexualities, all of this shame and stigma to do with that, which is basically just ways of that people have controlled other people and um, described the way that their bodies are and categorized them. Uh, all of this is just all about 
control and that control is somehow exercised through shame and stigma which is handed down from generate through generations even though it changes every generation and um and that's just something that that we've all been living with for all of this time and you know some of these shames and stigmas are going away uh where i'm sure we're creating new ones all the time as well and some of them are changing um but yeah if only i knew how to you know, speak to a teenager and get a teenager to not listen to those shames and those stigmas that um, that are not arising naturally within them. They're completely absorbed from the media or the family or whoever around them. And, uh, and it's just really sad. And, you know, we've all been through that in some way or another. We've all gone through that. And some of us have listen to that voice for too long and listen to those shames and those stigmas for too long. And, uh, you know, we all we all live with them in some degree and i guess a lot of my life i've been or at least in over recent years i've been you know trying to like not listen to them as much as i used to um, and moving more in my work moving more into into this this freer direction and this idea of queer utopia which you know would not include any shame and stigma <laughs> So let's talk about those the shame and stigma. How much impact does because I don't think this is something who uh, somebody who is not gay would uh, necessarily recognize. How much yeah. of an impact do shame and stigma have on gay culture? And is there a growing recognition by non people who are not gay of the shame and stigma that is being imposed on gay people? Yeah. Well, I think that. Um, we, we let's think historically for a minute. You know, a lot of my work is is based on looking at history, whether it's in this book, Deep Sniff, or in the podcast that I make, the logbooks, and other things as well. A lot of things are come from history. Uh, that's um, and and so I think that you can see the um, in in countries like the US and the UK, which are very very similar in many ways, and obviously these two countries are connected. Um, you can see uh, the way that shame and stigma have gradually around homosexuality specifically have been gradually created and um, reinforced um, you know it's not to say that uh, men having sex with men was always seen as socially a bad thing in 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 every single place around the world like that is just not the case um, there have been moves and efforts to uh, create rules and laws and social customs around uh, the badness of homosexuality. Uh, in fact, the creation of homosexuality as a concept didn't happen until uh, the uh, second half of the 19th century. Before then, there was no distinction between homosexuality and heterosexuality. And some people would say that the very creation of this idea that there were these two different sexualities meant that you could then say, oh, well, this one is, one of them is good and one of them is bad. Uh, and then that was codified into laws. In the UK, we had laws against sodomy and uh, you know against homosexual practices between men and that was on the books until 1967 uh in the uk uh and even when i was a child there was a law against teachers talking to school children about the existence of gay people or bisexual people or lesbians uh, that was when i was at school and i'm only 36 uh that that was a law that was in place and so um so yeah i i i tend to think historically and tend to think about the creation of um of all of these things i mean in in the US, the uh, the famous one of the famous things was the fight for the um, removal of homosexuality 
from the DSM, which is the, the book that um, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists use as a sort of standard diagnostic tool. And the homosexuality as a, as a psychiatric problem was in that manual, in that profession's manual until 1973. So, um, so I think, you know, these are some of the kind of like the legal and technical ways that we have created literally created the shame and the stigma by literally codifying <laughs> being gay or being queer as being a bad thing um but then all through the 20th century uh and especially in the us in the 70s and the uk in the 70s uh after the stonewall uprising in 69 over there and the decriminalization of partial decriminalization of homosexuality in the UK in 1967, you know, from the late 60s and through the 70s, you just see more and more people just saying, you know what, we've had enough of this. This is, we've got to move away from this. We've got to change these laws. We've got to live our lives as freely as possible. And they could do that because they were concentrating themselves as communities in places like San Francisco, New York, and London. And uh, you just gradually see this assertion of, of, of their freedom and their sexual um, freedom and their gender expression. And so, um, so I think that there's really, you know, that is, um, that's not the only moment in history where that, really started to shift a lot but i do think that that has been uh, a shift away from shame and stigma um that started in that case in the 70s um the poppers the story of poppers kind of intersects with that as well which maybe we will get on to um and the second half of your question oh chuck i've forgotten <laughs> it was about today was it remind me yeah it was uh let me get back to where i was here <laughs> how did they lead to a utopia of being that's all oh right yeah so um yeah well i guess so you know a lot of people um use this phrase queer utopia i heard it used a, um by artists um i've heard it used by intellectuals or or just or campaigners um for queer liberation and for the change in, in laws around um lgbtqi plus identities um i've heard uh people using it sort of philosophically and um and i just thought when i was writing the book i want to really think about what queer utopia means to me and i was getting a bit tired of people using it to basically not really talk about utopia but just to talk about and an an acceptance and a respect for the rights that I believe that queer people um, like have, but they're just not given to us yet. And so those are rights, things like you know, um, like like legal rights, like uh, you know, non discrimination in the workplace and stuff like that. Um, completely mundane legal rights, even gay marriage, completely mundane to me. But these are the rights that we should have. And I think a lot of people use queer utopia when they're really talking about um things like that and that's not really what utopia is about in my experience of utopia as a sort of framing of thinking about society and i kind of come from a science fiction sort of tradition of thinking about the future of society you know it's quite like wild and wacky and and crazy and really 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 forward thinking um just because i love sci-fi so much so so for me utopia thinking about utopia is it's about something that can't really exist and won't ever exist but it's about putting down a a placeholder so far in the future that en enables you to push yourself towards that and so the steps along the way might be some of those legal things that i talked about about freedoms but actually the whole point of thinking about queer utopia is to think way further beyond that and also it's always going to be moving it's always relational to where you are now so even if we get um things like gay marriage which we have got that doesn't mean that we've reached 
liberation. <laughs> Far from it. It um, you know, it's always something like, okay, well, there's always more to be done in in freeing ourselves. And so that was how I started to think about queer utopia because I was thinking about how poppers basically create this sense of potential in our bodies and the idea of categories that we might place on ourselves, like gay or like male, they sort of fall away a bit because you're just in the moment of of enjoying this rush that you have from poppers and maybe you're having sex with yourself or with somebody else. And so it can be this really connective experience anyway, like that. And so the categories just are not relevant in that moment. And so I thought of categories alongside things like shame and stigma as things that would fall away gradually as we move ourselves towards this queer utopia and so if we're thinking about queer utopia it's it's more kind of emotional and uh something like that for me it, more than legal rights or legal recognition that's what the phrase means to me and it was just thinking about poppers and what they do to us and our brains in that moment that set me down that track and you uh, point out that these uh, there's these are innovations of the 19th century. As journalist mm-hmm. Carl Maria Kirthany, who coined the term homosexual, and his colleague mm-hmm. Carl Heinrich Ulrichs, who is sometimes referred to as the father of the LGBTQ mm-hmm. movement. These are both people from, the, again, the 19th century. So my question was going to be, you know, uh, what has changed? Is that what, when it comes to stigma and shame, is that what changed? Is in the 19th century, once these categories were determined of, homosexual and LGBTQ, is that what changed and actually led to stigma and shame? Well, I I, I certainly think it contributed. I mean, that there's, there's, it's a double-edged sword here, right? Because um, in order to, in, in order to see something properly, in a way, you have to be able to name it. That's why doctors like to diagnose specific conditions in patients and why patients want specific diagnosis, because once it's named, you can then set about treating it. Um, And uh, I'm not saying that homosexuality is something that needs to be treated. I'm just saying that as humans, that's something that we do. We like to name things so that we can like understand it. Um, And in the case of uh, being uh, gay or something like that, to express it and to um, enjoy it. And so that was, I think that was where people like the two Carls that you mentioned were coming from in, uh, in in Europe in the late 19th century was, was was saying like well look this is a feeling that we have we are um, our bodies move us in this direction <laughs> towards members of the same sex and there's there's nothing wrong with that the only thing that's wrong is that the law is not accepting of that and other people think that that's wrong so that's the thing that needs to change and that was really what their innovation was certainly Karl Heinrich Ulrich's innovation was you know as a lawyer standing up in front of 500 lawyers in 1867 and telling them look i'm i'm a homosexual and the law's got to change like that might have been the first ever public coming out we don't know but that was certainly a huge deal in 19 sorry in 1867 so to think about um the uh, the use of categories there to assert who he was and to assert the rights that he should have um, means that those categories are incredibly valuable and important. And today, you know, we use those categories for the same reason. It's really, really still powerful when a person expresses their um, their, sexu- their sexuality or their gender identity, um, whatever it is. It's a really powerful moment for them to do that. But also sometimes it's really hard to do that um and you know we know that categories are important because if i go to a new city if i land in chicago on holiday tomorrow and if i don't know anyone i'm gonna like google to try and find the gay bar or the queer venue um and so those categories are really useful because then it means i'll be able to find those 
those places and go there um, for a night out and meet maybe other people that I want to that I want to meet. So the categories are really important in that sense. But I do think that there is something insidious in categorization, and it's it's a weird human thing that we do. Don't you think? Yeah, and one of the things I was thinking about, though, was you point out that something about the way we live means that we trap our soul and our nature into categories. This is not (laughs) the future we deserve. If I feel like a man who is gay, I have to wonder about the solidity of those words and therefore their Mm -hmm. usefulness. So to what extent do you think these categories are imposed on us by capitalism, by the market? Because there are certainly communist, socialist, dictatorships, theocracies, and all forms of governance where this categorization exists. So what is capitalism's role in either fueling or maintaining these categories? Oh, it's huge. You cannot understate it. And, you know, if, if we just talk about the story of poppers for a moment. So, you know, poppers originally, the original substance, amyl nitrite, was synthesized first in the middle of the 19th century and scientists had written about it a little bit in papers they studied the effect of sniffing poppers on the blood vessels it dilates them and on blood pressure it lowers them and they had uh, done tests in humans and in animals but there was no use for that uh, and then a, a, a doctor who's pretty gorgeous if you want to look him up online thomas louder brunton got a great big victorian beard and uh, he was a doctor who was treating patients with angina And he knew that the problem with uh, angina pain was that not enough blood was getting into the heart. So he had read those papers about the effect of sniffing amyl nitrite and he tried it in his patients. That's how amyl nitrite became a therapy and a relief for angina pain. And he sort of popularized it as as a treatment. And so it was a medical substance. And it was doing really well for a few decades as a medical substance treating that kind of pain and other kind of uh, pains and maladies as well. And then in the middle of the 20th century, we don't exactly know when, but people started sniffing it uh, because it gave them pleasure and because it opened their bum holes so that they could have sex there and relaxed other muscles as well, which is always a nice thing to happen in sex. And so uh, at some point it transitioned from a medical use to mostly a recreational and a sexual use. And of course, in the 60s, that went the, that kind of use went through the roof in certain places in the US and among certain you know, hippie communities and stuff. And then at some point, people realized that, well, a a small number of people realized, look, there's a product here. There is an increasing number of gay men concentrated in San Francisco and in New York. And they are doing things like opening bookshops, creating gay magazines and gay books, uh, creating more and more gay venues um, and uh, doing all sorts of things that were basically, um, you know, commercial activity because there was enough people uh, of, of that demographic that you could create products and services for. And so a couple of brain boxes who knew how relatively easy it was to actually make poppers decided to make some brands. They're still brands that are going today, ones like Rush and Locker Room, and uh, uh, create marketing and labels and Um, advertising to sell this product to these specifically gay men that were using them. And that was the real like fire in a way under the the poppers industry in that moment, you know, and those companies started in 1976, same year that Starbucks and Microsoft and Apple started, you know, some of these huge companies that we still have today. And so I don't think you can understate the, the value of, 
a marketable demographic to capitalism. You know, it's the whole thing about teenagers, the concept of a teenager being created in the, whenever it was the 40s or the 50s as well, as a, as a, as a new demographic that could be marketed and sold poppers to. Oh, not poppers, <laughs> sell products to. And so, yeah, so I think that the story of poppers really is just one example of how uh, capitalism mixes with this idea of gay identity and the category of being gay um, and uh, and how you can see how products are created around a particular group of people. And you point out this uh, the sale of poppers at a place called Roland Chemist in Paddington. You write the amount of amyl nitrate sold through Roland Chemist was extraordinary. In one 12-month period between 1975 and 1976, at the height of the pharmacy's poppers business, it sold 185,700 ampoules of amyl nitrate. <laughs> Let there be a gold plaque to Peter Batten Lucas and Paul R- Roland Fletcher, the directors of the business, for their contribution to the enhancement of pleasure. F- Fletcher and Lucas also had two other shops on Earl's Court Road, close to a cluster of gay pubs, including the Colern, which was popular with certain categories of gays, including Leatherman. They supplied their other shops through the Roland Chemist shop in Paddington. So was this, if this was the era of height, uh, the height of poppers in London gay culture, what does this reveal about London gay culture in 1975 and 1976? What was happening in gay culture that led to this explosion in popper culture? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it was the height. I mean, it might be, to be honest, that the height is right now because like Popper's use is really, really big right now. Um, So I'm not sure about the height, but yeah, definitely it was a height or a peak um, in that moment. And actually the fact that it that story, the fact that it's about a a chemist, a pharmacy uh, selling amyl nitrate over the counter for people who came into the shop, to the pharmacy and said, oh, I've got a heart problem. Can I have amyl nitrate? And they knew that they were gay men. Uh, there are statements from the people that worked in the pharmacy knowing that it was gay men that were coming in and that they were going to use it for sex. But there wasn't really a restriction or a control on on how it could be sold. Um, but the fact that in that year that I'm talking about, that that was a huge supply of, of poppers or amyl nitrate through that pharmacy versus in the US, the creation in the same year of companies that were making poppers with brand names. That's an interesting contrast really between a US version of like business and and capitalism and a UK one, you know, like the British ones, um, I guess they missed the boat there. You know, they could have business, businesses in the UK could have created like poppers companies and poppers brand names so that they were sold in the way that they had started to be sold in the US um, as a sex product. Whereas here they were still being sold. uh, I live in London. They were still being sold through pharmacies for sort of fake medical use. Um, So that's, it's an interesting contrast there. But in terms of what was going on in the seventies in London, well, from people who I know who were alive at that point and having sex at that point, um, you know, it was, it was a really, really huge, uh, gay and queer liberation moment. The early seventies in the UK had seen the gay liberation front made huge public, uh, uh, gains really not in actually winning rights, but in, um, creating a huge, an, a, a very loud agenda for gay rights and, and queer liberation. Um, we had had the partial decriminalization of homosexuality in 67, which meant it was no longer illegal for two men to have sex, as long as they weren't in the military, and as long as they were doing it in private, whatever that means, and as long as there were only two men. It couldn't be more than two men. So that's why we say it was a partial decriminalization. That happened in 67, but actually very, very soon after that, you saw the rise of 
prosecutions uh, and persecution, actually, from police of men for having sex with men, uh, because there was a bit of a, um, a backlash, really, against that partial decriminalization, where police um, used other laws to persecute men having sex with men, um, especially those that were doing it in public, in toilets and things like that. And um, so there was more arrests and more fines and things. And so the Gay Liberation Front, you know, here, which uh, had sort of taken also some of the tactics um, from the US Gay Liberation Front of being very uh, loud and boisterous and doing what they called zaps, which were, you know, um, sort of act uh, activist um, interventions in, in public life, they were very very loud in the seven in the early seventies, and they they sort of burnt out um, after after a couple of years. Um, but they left behind this this sense that actually you know things were changing, and that you could push for change, and you could get change, and you could become freer uh, as as a group of people, and you could fight for your rights, and that there was a community of people around you who were like you, who were gay or lesbian, uh, etc., and who could um, who who would support you, and so. Um, when I hear people talk about the 70s, I was born in 84, so it's before my time. But when I hear people talk about the 70s here, they talk about that sense of, of freedom um, and of movement, really, in, in society. So that meant, you know, more and more gay venues opening. Many of them were still in the basement or you had to know like a password to get in. But once you got in, it was great. And yeah, just a lot and lot of sex and a lot of different sexual categories, uh, like more and more leather guys um, or like motorbike type guys. Uh, uh, obviously later on you get the clone. So all of that happened and the same in the US as well, uh, until things started to shift in the early eighties when a lot of people were starting to get sick and then things did feel different. Things felt different, and you'll even point out how Poppers at one point was being linked to the rise of HIV. We've been speak we are speaking with writer Adam Smith, author of Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Smith. And you can find out more about Adam at his website that's linked right there at his Twitter account as well. So uh, you yeah. write that whereas uh, when you were mentioning uh, branding and uh, the uh, and capitalism's impact here in the United States on all of these uh, poppers that they started producing, you write that whereas Roland Chemist salespeople knew their customers were gay men, mm -hmm. they didn't market their product at them. In the USA, however, companies had begun to manufacture, distribute, and advertise poppers as a product specifically for this demographic. Some mm -hmm. of the famous brands, as you were mentioning, Rush Locker Room, endure to this day under the banner of a company called the Pacific Western Distributing Com uh, Corporation, or PWD, founded in 1976. So did the U.S. Uh, gay scene import poppers and popper culture from the London scene? Was London the birthplace of popper use? And is gay culture in the U.S. in that sense imported from the U.K.? No, I think it's, um, I think it's probably... Well, okay, it depends how far back you want to go, Chuck, because the, um, you know, the original amyl, the original use in humans of amyl nitrite, you know, started in Edinburgh in Scotland, which was the medical use that we talked about already. Um, and so, and I think that we, we could, we can say that we owe our poppers hits today to that particular doctor, uh, Thomas Lauder Brunton, who gave poppers or amyl nitrite to his, to his patient. Um, and he popularized it first through the UK, through the rest of Britain, through writing in The Lancet, which is a, a very influential medical journal uh, still, and other outlets. And so he popularized it among medics in the UK. Um, 
And then obviously, you know, medics in the US began to use and prescribe amyl nitrite as well for similar reasons. But the question really is, when did poppers transfer over from a medical use into a recreational and sexual use? And where was that? Um, I think it's probably like more likely to be in the US than in the UK, but it might have happened in both. And I've heard rumors about US medical students uh, in the 30s. Uh, sniffing poppers for fun. So you can imagine that. Um, but certainly, I mean, it was a UK uh, company, um, which uh, Burroughs Welcome, pharmaceutical company that had set up in the US as well. And, and they manufactured both in the US and in the UK, manufactured uh, poppers um, in a way which gave poppers the name that we use for them today, amyl nitrite. Uh, well, poppers, <laughs> sorry, gave amyl nitrite the name poppers because they were manufactured as pharma products in these little glass ampules that you would crush between your hands to release the vapor. And that crush would make a popping sound. Um, and so I think it's it's really hard to say, you know, whether it was a British innovation or a US innovation that, uh, that, that became poppers. But I definitely think that the commercialization of poppers as a sex drug is a US innovation. And that was the thing that happened in the 70s. When I saw that it was at one point being made by a company with uh, the name of it was Burroughs Wellstone, I was so hoping that was related to William Burroughs, and it is not. Oh, right. I was <laughs> no, so hoping. Because, yeah, yeah, he uh, was uh, heir to the Burroughs business machine company. So I was wondering, I was like, is right. this a spinoff of it? I'm so hoping, and it was not. <laughs> so you, you write the marketing of the product itself for Poppers. This is a credit that can go to a man called... W.J. Freezer, within a year of founding PWD, again, Pacific Western Distributing Corporation, he was claiming in the Wall Street Journal that his Rush brand of poppers ought to be sold alongside shampoo and macaroni and cheese. He's quoted saying, if Safeway supermarket customers want the product, I don't see why it couldn't eventually be sold there. This is a quote (laughs) of his from an article in October 10th, 1977. So in your opinion... Should poppers be sold alongside shampoo and macaroni and cheese? <laughs> well, I'm I'm torn on this one because um, on the one hand, I do. It's think bad product that... placement right next to macaroni and cheese. To <laughs> I mean, you're going to really confuse your senses exactly. if you if, if you do all of that together. <laughs> also, it depends on the quality of the macaroni and cheese because bought because like store bought macaroni and cheese. Ugh. I don't think it's ever going to be a good thing. Um, no, but I think that there is, um, yes. So there there's, there's definitely room in my opinion for legal reform around poppers in the U S and the UK. Um, because in both places, it's not a banned substance. Uh, it, some agencies advise people against using it and the FDA just this summer, uh, did exactly that. Uh, but it's not a banned substance. They just advise people not to use it. Uh, and uh, that happens every so often. Agencies advise the public to do that. Um, but so they're not banned substances, but they um, they cannot be sold for human consumption. And so that means they can't be labeled to explain how you use it safely if you're going to be sniffing poppers, which is how people sniff it. And so so instead, that's why they're sold with the things that you said at the top of the hour, like room odorizer or leather cleaner they used to be sold as. Um, And it doesn't say, you know, here's how to sniff it safely, uh, because uh, it it can't be sold for that purpose. And so if you go into a sex shop where you might buy them, uh, the person selling you them can't tell you what this product is and how to use it. So there's this weird legal uh, deal, really, or a pact between like the law uh, manufacturers 
and users where this product can be sold, but it can't be sold and explained safely about how to use it. And now, can you imagine if that was the case with like a kitchen cleaning product, you know, that you keep, you know, in the in the kitchen below the kitchen sink, you know, a bleach or something like, can you imagine if the if the if the legal framework around that product was that you could not label how to use it safely? Um, that would just be really, really strange. So that's the situation that we're in with poppers. The fact is people are using it. People want to use it. It's safe. There are some harms, but they're really, really tiny. And, uh, you know, if we, we have to think about relative harms always when it comes to drugs and substances. So those relative harms are tiny. Um, and so it's strange that they're, that this is um, sold in this way. On the other hand, it's kind of fun and kind of queer that they occupy this very strange no person's land in the law where there is a label but it's not really telling you the truth and where there is a product but it can't really be sold for the way that everyone thinks it should be uh, sold for and and that there is a use and the use is sort of passed on from one person to the next about how to use it i don't know i find that really quite mysterious and quite queer and quite sort of like anti-label anti-society so there's there's an allure to me from you know to me for for poppers because they're in this strange status so that's my that's my view on that what do you think well uh, i was just curious so how how is that different from let's say Cigarettes that have surgeon general warnings, smokers clearly ignore, or Sudafed as a component of meth uh, manufacturing mm. or buying alcohol with its warnings. How are poppers even more of a lie than all of those misuses of products? Because this is a great quote from your article or your book. Uh, they may be the only product that the state allows to be sold on a lie. Well, I think the difference is that poppers are heavily associated with bum sex. And obviously lots of people drink alcohol and then go and have bum sex or any other kind of sex. But the fact is that poppers, as they became a substance that was used recreationally, that it was so heavily associated with sex. That was the main driving force, the thrust, if you like, behind the recreationalization of poppers, um, that it sort of put them in a slightly different, um, I don't know, conception of, of what that of what that drug was on, you know, in the minds of the lawmakers and of regulators. Um, and so, so I think that there's, there is some degree of lawmakers and regulators being slightly queasy or squeamish about uh, uh, thinking too much about poppers or, um, or regulating about them too much just because it's to do with with sex and um, yeah because like I said it it relaxes your bum hold so you can have sex there so so I think there's something about that that's different and then also um, you know the industry have not been able to become as powerful as the alcohol industry or the tobacco industry so. You know, they, you know, you can, there are some companies that have made a lot of money, some individuals that have made a lot of money from manufacturing poppers over the decades, but there's nowhere near on the scale of tobacco and, and alcohol, um, which have obviously been um, in previous decades been uh, a lot less controlled than they are now. And obviously, alcohol was extremely controlled in an earlier decade, so in the US. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's just, it's to do with basically the point here is it's to do with um, we do not have 
and never have had a rational and sensible approach to the different drugs that we make and produce and want to consume and that we have not assessed each of them on the basis of relative harms to the individual or to society and then created laws and controls and safety mechanisms around each of those products that are relative to those harms to individuals and people if we did we would probably ban alcohol because it's hugely damaging to the individual who takes it a lot and it's very damaging to society you know so much violence um and mayhem is caused by alcohol to the you know within an individual's body and between people in society you know that's why people you know go to the pub and then have a fight all of that stuff and i'm not talking about the i'm not for personally saying we should prohibit alcohol i'm just saying the, the policy around it, the regulation around it, compared to the harms is like really, really lax. And then when you compare to poppers where, uh, or even a drug like ecstasy, you know, um, no one's ever taken ecstasy and then beaten somebody else up because of it. Whereas that's what happens on a daily basis in most pubs in Britain because of alcohol. So we just don't really judge these things like sensibly and, and properly. And I think that it's to do with um, just how we, how we view these things and how we view the different types of people that do it. And I think the fact that poppers has been done by uh by certainly men having sex with men um has put it in a different category to those other things and this jay freezer who i uh, was who you quote uh, from the wall street yeah. journal article you write that uh, jay freezer pioneered the advertising of poppers in gay newspapers and magazines such as drummer based in los angeles the publication mm-hmm. was aimed at leather men and according to jack frisher who became its editor-in-chief in 1977 it was started by john Embry simply as a way to promote his own business selling poppers and leather wristbands by mail the idea mm-hmm. was to wrap reports and editorial columns on the leather scene around ads for gay products and it worked You quote Frischer writing in his history of the magazine. The name of the book is called Gay Pioneers. He writes, poppers kept drummer flying high. Popper dealers paid a huge chunk of advertising dollars buying full page display ads, including expensive inside covers and back covers. How important are poppers then in funding the emerging gay culture of the 1970s? Oh, huge. And I think that quote from Jack explains why, because the thing is, you know, gay magazines in the 70s, uh, well, not just the 70s, but, um, you know, they many of them started in the in the in the 50s. Um, Edith Ide started a lesbian newsletter from her office tri- typewriter in 1947 when she was told to look busy because they weren't very busy. And so she started her lesbian newsletter and she went on to uh, to to write for the uh, Daughters of Bilitis, which was the, the, the US's first lesbian newsletter. These these kind of things started in the 50s and they, they were hugely important for connecting uh, people who uh, shared that identity, you know, lesbians and gay men initially and primarily and uh, they were hugely important because and they came through the mail so they're kind of secret you could even have a po box if you were extra cautious so magazines have really connected our communities through uh, you know many decades most decades of the 20th century and uh, and so and you know every magazine i say this as a writer <laughs> every magazine needs money to work on to to, to run on and so um that's going back to what we were saying earlier about the importance or, or the influence of capitalism on the creation of uh, gay culture and uh, or queer subcultures generally, um, you know, is that the fact is that many of these magazines became uh, a place where people could advertise products and services, you know, gay travel agencies, gay insurance agencies, gay bookshops, all these things and poppers hugely. So yeah, that, that was definitely a feature of the, of the scene in the US and the UK and, and poppers were part of that i have to say that the adverts that 
that some of those magazines uh, published were um, just like amazing pieces of art really um, and sometimes very very strange uh, and sometimes in my opinion like quite weird in how they thought about what the idealized male body was you know like really hunky butch guys with i call them like dinner plate size pecs and often they had like 18 abs per person you know these these like hyper masculine uh, guys uh, illustrations of these guys were used in these adverts um, and I think that that helped to create this idea of what like a gay person and a man should look like as well around that time. Um, and so, yeah, there's one thing about keeping the magazine going by by having a ready supply of advertising revenue. And then there's another thing about actually creating the idealized image of what this community was. Um, and that obviously carried on. And things are hugely different now because the magazine's business has, you know, in this case, has mostly gone away and it's nowhere near as influential as it used to be. So did poppers then impose a categorization of gay men in this, you know, muscly leatherman situation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because um, I'm just curious if you, know, you feel peer pressure to be like those ads. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's something when we talk about shame and stigma, as we were doing earlier, that is absolutely still alive and kicking today. I mean, you know, if I go out in London to like a rave or something um, or a queer party as I did this weekend just gone you know you still see um, and I still speak to people and I'm in this category as well you know people who are looking around at the other people there and looking at their bodies and comparing the comparing the bodies and comparing their own body with what they see there and the fact that we all still do that uh, and the fact that there is often when you look at the Instagram accounts of these um, maybe these parties, uh, you know, the the pictures that are posted do not represent the diversity of bodies that actually go there. And I've spoken to people who say, "Oh, well, I don't, I don't want to go to that party because look, all the people look like that. They're all hunks, and I'm not a hunk, so I'm not going to feel welcome there." And I might say, "Well, I've been to that party, and they're not at all like what they look like on Instagram." There's a few people like that, obviously, and isn't it crap that they put those people on the Instagram, and that's the only type of body that they put on the Instagram? What I'm saying is. There is, there is still so much shame and stigma around different kinds of bodies needing to look in one way or another. Uh, and, and, I, and I think this is a huge part of gay culture. Uh, and, um, and I think that I, or I would hope that the, the offer of queer culture actually is to oppose that kind of thing and to say like, you know what, being queer is um, very much a feeling of who you are. And you're, if you're feeling radical and alternative and different to whatever the mainstream is telling you, including if it's telling you to look hunky like that, uh, then, um, you know, we've got no time for that. And so that's that's more why I more identify with with queerness and with queer culture and queer identity than I do with, with gay identity, just because I think that often that gets really bogged down in this, in these idealized versions of what men is, of what a man is. And, and and that's just really weird to me because that's just not a very, it's not a very good place to be in. And so, um, yeah, so I, yeah. <laughs> You're right that we might, uh, we might set the bar as high as this, how we can find a way to embody queer utopia by working to remove our poisons one by one. Diseases should be first as it is the easiest scientists are working on it. Hardest is next, our attitudes and the way we view each other. Why do you believe it is more difficult to change our attitudes and the way we view each other than it is to even end disease? Wow, yeah. Um, well, I just think that it seems that you can make the argument that 
that the scientific enterprise has gradually improved lives um, over over many many years, and I think that that is. Um, that is not without its drawbacks, and I'm not saying that that scientific progress and the, the you know the the fruits of it is evenly distributed because it is really not. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate to live in a country where we have socialized healthcare. Um, people in the US are not. Um, that's just one example, but um, but I do think that like there is an obvious scientific progress that we're talking about. But actually, if you look at social progress and social attitudes, these go up and down all the way. Um, through history and um, you know in many cases in many ways right now we are not in a good place in terms of attitudes especially towards transgender people in the UK you know there's a huge uh, attack on transgender people right now especially in a lot of uh, places in the media and a lot of uh, big opinion leaders in public life here and so um, and, and that wasn't the case 15 years ago. I'm not saying that they that trans people were fully liberated 15 years ago, but we've definitely seen uh, a reversal of some of the, the positive social attitudes. So I feel like um, things the social attitudes go up, up and down, and it's harder in a way. It's a lot harder to um, make sustainable uh, change there, I think, than it is than than through science and through the elimination of disease the fact is that we have done that um, and we're in the process of doing that of, of clamping down on this disease that's wreaking havoc still around the planet right now uh, and um, and all the other diseases as well we're in the progress of doing that and i don't know i'm just slightly more optimistic about uh the the, the methods that we use to progress science than i am for the methods that we use to progress uh, the social attitudes, even though I'm a storyteller and I'm much more on the social side, uh, you know, and, a, and, and an artist and a writer and those things, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best at that. But it just feels to me that in a way it's a harder job. Did the pandemic have any impact on the supply of poppers? Because you point out that in 2010, the, uh, the industry was pretty much uh, centralized and one company closed down and suddenly there was a huge shortage for a short period of time. So has the <laughs> pandemic had any problems with the supply chain of poppers? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure. If anyone listening knows the answer to that, then I'm sure you would love to hear from them. <laughs> <laughs> I will call them as soon as I know the person I should call after the show. You write how gay men uh, were excluded from mainstream society in countries with a classically liberal tradition and their response to conceive of themselves as individuals with an immutable identity. Identity is present in such men by their nature as homosexuals. Why does the liberal tradition not include gay people in all being created equal or the pursuit of happiness? I don't know. I don't know what went wrong. You know, the fact that, you know, the, the, the classic liberal tradition that I'm talking about there is, you know, those things from the, um, you know, starting in the 18th century and into the 19th century, those ideas of, um, of personal freedom and personal uh, liberty to um, express who, who you are, to explore your own destiny, um, and on the economic side, to um, produce and sell and trade um, as you wish. And, the, you know, these classic liberal ideas um i don't know exactly how it happened that um that a free sexuality became 
uh, you know, became anathema to that, um, or be or somehow contrasted to that. I just I think that it's it's a it's a great shame, and uh, obviously we have to point the finger somewhat at the Victorians and about and at this um, at this sort of at, at any sort of conservative force that happens in society, which comes and goes in waves. And the US has has a huge conservative um, foundation, uh, partly because of Puritanism. You know, in the in in those early days in the creation of the country, um, and the uh, power of uh, of religion, especially Christianity, which is much more powerful in the U.S. than it is here today, um, and so there are these conservative forces in society. And I guess it's it's still it's all about control. It's all about some people having the viewpoint that a person should live their life in in one way or another, and um, and and thinking basically people believing people tricking themselves into believing that a person's sexuality. Uh, has the potential to um, harm someone else, even if they uh, they're engaging consensually. You know, it's only without consent where um, where sex and sexuality harms other people. Otherwise, it's got nothing to do with anyone else. So, uh, um, it's, it's a great shame that that um, in li traditionally liberal countries like the US and the UK, that. The, the, the sexual freedom was something that got suppressed and that we had to fight so hard for, and we're still having to fight so hard for. You write that we inhale from our little bottles because we just want to be free of our bodies. We know deep down a truth about our bodies. They are the material that gives other people a hundred reasons to categorize us. But there's other ways to have out-of-body experiences. For instance, taking psilocybin and floating in a century deprivation tank for a couple of hours followed by yes. a walk in the woods fantastic or if you don't <laughs> want to go walk just sit there so why choose poppers well i mean like you said at the top you know i i'm not gonna you know go out and tell people that they have to sniff poppers um it's uh i think that there are you know the the arguments for poppers is just that um it's it's cheap uh it's a it's a quick rush it doesn't last very long so if you're worried about that then it's over quite soon um it is relatively harm free uh unless you do something like drink it or unless you have some other medical problem which might uh, be wrong in combination um and uh, it's just a way of relaxing of forgetting your inhibitions for a moment letting the world for, fall away having a nice head rush and if you're having sex with yourself or with someone else it can only enhance that feeling uh, of of desire and just mm, really wanting sex you know and you also write that, uh, let's get back to the beginning of our conversation on categorization. You write performance art, like 16.9, followed by about 12 more digits, by Louis <laughs> Amalia, uh, is especially good at doing this with regard to our bodies. Amalia was a gymnast and an actress with a non-binary, hairy body, perceived as male, performing on a line among a crowd of unwitting strangers. Watching the performance or just trying to avoid it, each viewer glimpsed an alternative way to use their own body, body outside any categorization. As Amalia showed... The future we want to see can be created now, imagined by our artists. If a queer mm -hmm. utopia challenges categorizations, does it even challenge the categorization of queer? Is a queer utopia the end of such categories, including queer? Well, yes and no, because the fact is that queer is this label that's not a label, you know, and it's it's basically it's relative. It's moving. You know, when we look at Carl Heinrich Ulrich, Carl Heinrich Ulrich, who stood up and said, um, he didn't say the word gay, but he said that he had sex with men and he was a man. Um, 
when he said that in 1867, we would now use the word gay to describe it. And if he had the word gay, he probably would have used it. He did have the word homosexual. Um, and that's a word that today we still know what that means. And some people still use that word gay, right? Um, so that is a, a solid identity categorization, which is essentially, a, you know, socially constructed. Um, but the fact is that the word queer has meant different things in different times. And for many people, including myself, in different parts of my life, it has been an, it has been used as an insult and primarily used in society as an insult. But, um, you know, since the mid-90s, people have used it more and more uh, to, a, to a certain kind of power. Um, and in that power is the fluidity of the word queer. And so I don't know what the word queer is going to mean in five years' time or ten years' time, but I, I think that's the point, that um, it will always be re relational. It will... And, relation to the mainstream and relation in relation to uh, more solid ways of thinking about ourselves. So I think that if any particular way that we live ourselves or describe ourselves becomes more solid, queer as a word will always be there to say, hmm, you know, there might be other ways of doing things, there might be other ways of living, there might be other ways of expressing your feelings or your identities. And I think that's really wonderful. And that's something that is an inherent um, uh, sort of um, part of the word queer, really. It's that's that's what the that's what the word means to me. And so that's why I like to think of that as in terms of utopia, because we're never going to get to utopia. Utopia does not exist. It will not exist. It will never exist. You will never get there. In, in the same way, you will never get to whatever you think of queerness is, because it's always relational. You're always moving. And that, to me, is just a, a, a sort of a freer, better way of living. Um, it's kind of like being a yes person of, 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 you know, like, well, yeah, let's just let's explore this. Let's go down here. I want to say yes to, to exploring this thing. Um, and seeing where it takes me. It's about potential. Uh, and that's something that is is the spirit of the book, really. One last question for you. We've been speaking with writer Adam Smith, author of Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Follow Adam on Twitter, at Adam Smith. One last question for you, Adam. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, it, it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What does the state allowing the sale of a product based on a lie say to you about capitalism today? What do poppers <laughs> reveal to you about capitalism? <sighs> I think pop to me, poppers reveal a very, very awkward uh, fact of capitalism <laughs> that, um, uh, and, and I say this as as a as a radical uh, and as a progressive, that um, on the one hand, capitalism is can be very efficient at giving us a product that uh, that means a lot to uh, lots of people and can help people who identify with a certain uh, way of living uh, can can help those people to come together and to to find themselves and to find each other through a product or service. But on the other hand, uh, the very fact of it creating that category uh, and creating that demographic is inherently um, not progressive, in my opinion. And so that's the the double bind that we're in with capitalism. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is a fascinating book. I always like having conversations about topics that we haven't touched on before. We've never discussed poppers <laughs> before. So thank you so much for having this conversation with us. I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this 
is hell if that conversation with Adam on Poppers and Queer Utopia was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you in some way or gave you a better understanding of, yes, this is hell. Please show your support for This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click and subscribe. Click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, and for your third wish, Joel S. says, supersize it. Wojek R. says, one more pull tab. (laughs) Ronaldo M. says, no more cutting the paws off monkeys. (laughs) That's it. Like I said, this is slow. slow, uh, The the slowest we've had for a Several years. I I'll, would I'll say. come up with a universally universally applicable one next time. Uh, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. As I was saying yesterday, we are seeking new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board as Jess and Alex and Richard do, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, we are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at, mon- at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and then again on Friday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with a stipend that is actually verging on a living wage so keep that in mind as well if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on this is hell email me at chuck at this is alex who is on tomorrow's wednesday's live one hour show at 10 a.m chicago time right here at this is hell.com uh, before that i want to say uh tomorrow night if someone wants to bring poppers to the bar <laughs> i'll be there i'll be bringing anzac biscuits which you can also sniff but if you uh, bring poppers by i've never given a trial uh, i'll give them a sniff yeah you can just you can just put it out like on a rag and just have it be in the air in a room. You don't have to actually inhale it, but apparently, from Adam's experience, inhaling is you know. Yeah, I'll give it the I'll, I'll give it the real try. Uh, so Wednesday, I've done it before. <laughs> Wednesday, economist Rob Larson on his current affairs article: How serious is the inflation situation? And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin decodes a MAGA secret. We got an email at Chuck at this is from Laura, who works in organic farming and is a member of the National Farmers Union in British Columbia and the Yukon. Laura writes, hi, Chuck. I'm a longtime grateful listener of This Is Hell and sending all the appreciation vibes I can muster your way through the digital ether. It looks like I'll be making a trip down to Santiago, Chile for the first time this January to watch my partner play in the pan-american games i've never really traveled outside i really want to know what a partner's event is in the pan-american games i've never really traveled outside of north america before and i'm hoping to make it as much a political education excursion as possible i've listened through all your episodes with brie busk about the evolving situation in chile and you can find all those interviews by Searching on Bree's last name, Busk, B-U-S-K, at our website, and I was wondering if you might be at liberty to pass on her contact info. It would be great to connect either while I'm down there or to hear her advice on where to learn from the folks organizing in Santiago. Thank you, Laura. Listeners, if you would like to contact any guest who appears here on This Is Hell, just get in touch with us and ask for their contact information. We'll then send a request to share their information or ask if we can simply forward your email to our past guest. Of course, guests may say no or may never reply, but we promise 
we'll at least ask, as we have done for Laura with Bree. Laura, we do not know if Bree will respond, but if she does, we'll contact you immediately. You may also remember an email we received from Edson suggesting we speak with Catherine Page Harden, author of a new book titled The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. Well, you may not have heard it or may have forgotten, but Edson heard us reading his email and he writes, Dear Chuck, I feel that you, being the interviewer you are, would have a fascinating chat with Ms. Harden about whether she thinks it's possible to use genetic information to accomplish progressive social goals, especially in a capitalist system. If one part of the book she actually in one part of the book she actually acknowledges that without a universal single payer health care system in the United States, the question of genetic differences is almost irrelevant because of the outsized influence of money on the care people are able to access. But she doesn't go further to say that she would like to see happen. What she would like to see happen with this science is just not likely to be used in a good way in the really, really bad system that is capitalism. By the way, I won't be bothered in the least if you decide not to have her on, not to mention the possibility that she's simply not available or willing to participate. I don't, don't just assume that because you want to speak to someone, they automatically always say yes. Your show, show is brilliant. The people you have on always teach me something new, make me think about things in a new way, get me talking to others about these topics. Whether or not you have her on will have zero impact on me continuing to not miss a single podcast for the foreseeable future. Great show once again. Thanks. Thanks again for this show. Ciao for now. Edson. Thanks, Edson, for the kind words. And as you may have noticed from today's talk on poppers, no topic is too let's say, different for us. Finally, we got an email from Brad asking about his prize for having his answer to the question from hell being selected our favorite last week. If you are a past winner of the, or no, this is a few weeks ago. If you are a past winner of the question from hell and have yet to receive your prize, email us and we'll make certain it's on its way. Last week's winner, Zach, claimed his prize and he sent us a message to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Zach writes, hey, this is Hell Crew. Thanks for selecting my answer to this week's question from hell. I really do think that this virtual reality simulator is bupkis i've been selected before so am i still able to claim swag if so i'd love a red and white trucking industry professional hat thanks for all you do in hell zach so we told zach that listeners are allowed to win more than once and a few already have and some of them we didn't even recognize there are multiple time winners because who gives a damn if they win more than once zach replied that's awesome thanks the trucking industry professional cap in red and white please and man are those things suddenly becoming popular you'd think that the medical masks would be selling more but no it's the red and white trucker industry cap you too can win the question from hell more than once it's all about having our favorite answer and you not being in any way associated with the show because we do not want to play favorites or have any perceived conflicts of interest as if some staff members are getting rich on this is hell merchandise <laughs> listeners please send your guest and topic suggestion or just your thoughts on the show to chuck at this is and if you do we'll likely share your thoughts on air. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>